1: Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America NA, member FDSE. It's very
2: difficult to keep the line between the past and the present. you believe that someone out of the past can enter and take possession of a living being? We may be through with the past, but the past is not through with us.
3: Welcome to The Next Picture Show, a Movie of the Week podcast devoted to a classic film and how it shaped our thoughts on a recent release. I'm Scott Tobias, here with... Keith Phipps.
0: Genevieve Kosky. Tasha Robinson. Here on The Next
3: Picture Show, we believe that no film exists in a vacuum, and that all culture is more interesting in context. So every other week, we get together to talk over a classic film and consider how it relates to a current movie. This week, we're setting course to an uncharted island in the South Pacific, a land that time forgot and the movies periodically remember when they want to empty the studio coffers. It's money and adventure and fame. It's the thrill of a lifetime and a long sea voyage that starts at 6 o'clock tomorrow morning. Tasha? Where the hell are we going?
1: This week we're headed to Skull Island, where many a foolhardy crew has come in search of adventure and left with its ranks diminished, and sometimes with a giant gorilla in tow. With the new Kong Skull Island, the latest reimagining of the King Kong story, in theaters now, we thought the time was right to look back on the 1933 version, one of the most significant and influential spectacles in movie history. Produced by David O. Selznick and directed by Miriam C. Cooper and Ernest B. Schoedsack, who had worked together on adventures like The Four Feathers and The Most Dangerous Game, King Kong. Kong. Kong was a blockbuster decades before the term was even conceived. Opening with a trip to an exotic island that evolution forgot, and closing with a great beast swatting at planes atop the Empire State Building, the film sought first and foremost to expand the possibilities of what cinema could do. It also inspired a slew of remakes and knockoffs, most notably the semi-notorious Jeff Bridges' Jessica Lange version from 1976, Peter Jackson's three-hour 2005 behemoth, and now Kong, Skull Island, which sets the action at the end of the Vietnam War. Vietnam, Scott. What's,
3: what's that all about? Uh, this podcast is not about Vietnam, Tasha. It is Vietnam. <laughs> and this week, Vietnam is a giant gorilla. Uh, on this episode, we'll go ape over the original King Kong and consider how its themes and effects still resonate 84 years later. Then, on our next episode, we'll bring in Kong Skull Island, the latest and perhaps quirkiest attempt to reintroduce Kong to a contemporary audience. Does every generation get the King Kong it deserves? And if that's true, what does that say about us? We'll talk it out after the break. What's your name?
2: And Darrow. Fine. I've got a job for you. Costumes on the ship will fit you. Broadway shops are still open. I can get some clothes for you there. Come on. But, but, what is it? It's money and adventure and fame. It's the thrill of a lifetime and a long sea voyage that starts at 6 o'clock tomorrow morning. No, wait. I... I don't understand. You must tell me. I do want the job, Silver. So, I can't... Oh, I see. No, you've got me wrong. This is strictly business. Well, I only wanted sure. to... Sure, sure you did. I got a little excited and I forgot you didn't understand. Listen, I'm Carl Denham. Ever hear of me? Yes, yes. You make moving pictures in jungles and places. That's right. And I picked you for the lead in my next picture. We sail at six. Where to? A long way off. Now listen, Ann. I'm on the level. No funny business. What do I have to do? Just trust me and keep your chin up.
3: King Kong opens on a chartered boat in the New York Harbor, where Carl Denham, a filmmaker known for taking audiences to exotic locales, is not letting anyone know where he's going. There's some griping about his eccentricity and his refusal to reveal any details about the trip, but Denham asks for a leap of faith. Quote, listen, I'm going out to make the greatest picture in the world, something that nobody's ever seen or heard of. They'll have to think up a lot of new adjectives when I come back. This is the definition of hubris, and Denham pays for it in mass catastrophe, both on Skull Island and the island of Manhattan, where scores of people lose their lives in service of his ambitions as a showman. But it's also what baseball players refer to as calling your shot like Babe Ruth pointing his bat to the centerfield bleachers and knocking a homer on the very next pitch. For the team behind King Kong, it took a lot of nerve to make a movie about a movie, especially when they are setting the same expectation with audiences that Carl Denham sets with his crew before shipping off. The miracle of King Kong is that you can look at it in 2017 and still be astonished by how big a swing it took for the fences and how it landed at a different scale of movie in the cheap seats. King Kong has opened up discussion on any number of fronts, from screen violence and sexuality, to its racial implications, to the legacy of its special effects. But what stands out to me about it is that impulse to push the medium to the limit and, to paraphrase Carl Denham, show people something they've never seen before. Before digital projection came along and ruined my life, uh, film was a magic show built on the illusion of celluloid running through a projector at 24 frames per second but the history of film is a history of filmmakers having to continue to find ways to astonish the audience, whether through the introduction of sound and color, through large formats like CinemaScope, Cinerama, and 70mm, through technical innovations like 3D, or through movies that overwhelmed you with the sheer size of their scope and ambition. King Kong falls into that last category, along with films like The Birth of a Nation, Lawrence of Arabia, Jaws, and Star Wars. It was an evolutionary leap forward one of those films through which vast swaths of cinema itself can be accounted for. We see its influence in the remakes by Dino De Laurentiis and Peter Jackson and now Jordan Vote roberts We see it in the effects work of Ray Harryhausen and others that followed. We can see it in the countless monster movies that followed in its wake. But mostly we can look at King Kong now and forever and understand what it means to dream big and how dreaming big has kept cinema alive.
2: Ladies and gentlemen, I'm here tonight to tell you a very strange story. A story so strange that no one will believe it. But, ladies and gentlemen, seeing is believing. And we, my partners and I, have brought back the living proof of our adventure. An adventure in which 12 of our party met horrible deaths. And now, ladies and gentlemen, before I tell you any more, I'm going to show you the greatest thing your eyes have ever beheld. He was a king and a god in the world he knew. But now he comes to civilization. Merely a captive a show to gratify your curiosity. Ladies and gentlemen, look at Kong, the eighth wonder of the world.
3: So I was going to open with one of my favorite impossible questions, which is, what must it have been like for audiences to see this film in 1933? Uh, Then Keith sent me quotes over IM from a couple of mixed reviews and variety in the New York Times, and I was totally deflated. So I'll ask more simply, how did it make you feel seeing it today?
1: I'm really curious for these reviews. Like, <laughs> yeah. I, I went and looked up the New York Times review by Morton Hall, and it seems entirely complimentary. What? What? Which review were you looking? Oh, at it's rate?
4: it's complimentary. Yeah, I think I think Scott's just being a little pessimistic. It's the same review, but it also it's measured, and I thought it was really interesting. We had this sort of idea that older audiences at the time were naive and like could be tricked by these social effects that now look kind of, you know, constructed to us. And, you know, the train came right at them and they all flinched, you know, and it's not necessarily the case. There. There's an account of, of, you know, received by many a giggle to cover up fright is a quote and. Constant exclamations issued from the Radio City Music Hall yesterday, what a man, observed one youth when the ape forced down the Great Oaken Door on the island, which I thought was fun. But the (sighs) Variety review is interesting, too, because it talks about how the audience has to, quote, become accustomed to the phony atmosphere, at which point they may commence to feel the power, which is, I think, an interesting, a pretty smart way of looking at how special effects Work for us, you kind of have to buy into the to the dream that they want you to sink into.
0: This sounds uh, strikingly like your defense against yeah. the term dated. <laughs> "dated." Yeah, I know. I know. I wrote a whole
4: piece, and then I was on a podcast, so I'm gonna just, I repeat myself. But uh, but I think you have to kind of stop resisting the movie, or else it's not going to work for you. Right? Well, it's a whole other discussion. I don't want to sidetrack it. But but I thought uh, it's kind of interesting to go back to those original reviews. Yeah. Uh, as for how it works for me now, I I, I love this movie, and and uh, I tweeted something to this effect. But it's like I forget just how brutal this movie is in yeah. between and how effective that is like some of those shots like the shot where kong holds the woman who's not Faye ray yeah. in his hand over the screaming crowds in new york that's just terrifying <laughs> still you know i mean that's just so effective I And mean, you feel her helplessness in, in that moment I, I, I don't know i, I think this and the movie is, is remarkable and some of the things i do there's some neat uses of scale like when you see how huge kong is and you see kong kind of dwarfed by the by the cave that he goes into as well you kind of get a sense of just how huge this world is um, I, I'm, I'm a fan I'm, I'm, a, I'm a big
1: that shot of, of him entering the cave is uh, to me it's one of the, the best things in the movie mm-hmm. I mean the, the cave itself I don't know if that was just they just had a different person paint that or they used a different kind of process to get the depth but it has a, a realism and a depth to it that just feels very it feels ancient you know which is something they're going for with a lot of the effects here in terms of all of these dinosaurs running around um i was also just really impressed by the the effort made to create scale like over and over and over in the the sequence where denim and his crew is fighting the first dinosaur that they encounter it's in the background they're in the foreground it's very obviously two different shots but it's like integrated really well it's got kind of a gertie the dinosaur back and forth feel where Mm -hmm. it's all just timed up but then when they actually kill it and they start walking by its body which is just Hugely close up and looming over the screen, you really feel the weight of that dinosaur, like in a way that really wasn't common for the for that kind of like mixed uh,
0: two panel shot at the time.
4: Yeah, well, so Brian knew what he was doing.
0: All right, I guess this is a point where I have to admit that I never saw King Kong before this, (laughs) and this is my my first time seeing it. And I actually saw it after watching Kong Skong. (laughs) I'm going to call this movie Kong Skong Island so many times. But I I watched it after seeing Kong Skull Island. So it's interesting hearing you guys talk about scale because by comparison, the original King Kong is much smaller than the, the versions of Kong that we've gotten since then. He's just gotten bigger and bigger, and he's quite large in uh, Skull Island.
4: He's still growing, of course. Yeah. yeah,
0: that's right. But I was so happy that I had a reason to go and watch this movie, because it's a movie that felt to me a lot like Psycho. Like you just, It's such a part of the canon, and it's been referenced and remade so many times that you feel like you know it, even if you haven't seen it. And I did not know this movie at all. Like, I mean, I all this stuff on the island was new to me. at all. Basically, I mean, we don't even see Kong until like almost halfway into the movie. I think like 45 minutes in is when we first see him. So all of the, the lead up to that, it struck me how cinematic it was and how good the pacing is and like it's really an entertaining movie even 80 some years later and like it does feel like a blockbuster before the term was coined which is i think what you said scott i mean there's lots of stuff that maybe doesn't hold up so well to modern scrutiny which i think we can get into or maybe it didn't even hold up that well to contemporary scrutiny based on on those reviews but as far as just a viewing experience in 2017 I, i really enjoyed it
1: the characters are really lively uh, in a way Mm -hmm. that's just kind of surprising for uh, seeing a movie of the time compared to Kong skull Island like it feels like you don't spend enough time with those characters mm-hmm. and you don't get to know them and they're all a bunch of stereotypes but the the ones in the original King Kong they do kind of take time to establish like who the key players are what their personalities mm-hmm. are like and how that's going to drive the story in a way that I thought was pretty interesting
3: uh, yeah I mean I, all that stuff with Carl Denham going into New York and casting mm-hmm. his mm-hmm. lead actresses from, from the breadline well, no, not from the breadline
4: no, exactly but from the she yeah. was
0: thinking about stealing an apple or an orange and before that
4: before that though like he was he's was hitting poverty yeah the, like the, the women's
0: house. shelter yeah, yeah exactly yeah,
4: yeah
1: and just I'm and, go i go mean, find a star for this movie if i have to marry her myself
3: <laughs> <laughs> and she's incredible i mean fey ray is
1: just
0: yeah oh, just I, I, so I,
3: full of spirit and adventure and just like
0: oh the it, the test shots on the deck of the ship where he's like calling out to her like what to do like look higher look higher you want to scream but you can't scream and it, like it's so great just like watching her face go through that with him narrating it
2: Camera. Look up slowly, Ann. That's it. You don't see anything. Now look higher. Still higher. Now you see it. You're amazed. You can't believe it. Your eyes open wider. It's horrible, Anne. but you can't look away. There's no chance for you, Anne. no escape. You're helpless, Anne. helpless. There's just one chance. If you can scream, but your throats paralyzed. Try to scream, man. Cry. Perhaps if you didn't see it, you could scream. Throw your arms across your eyes and scream, Anne. Scream for your life!
4: And yeah. still the gold standard, I think, for
0: screamers. Oh, uh, yeah. yeah screamer. Did, did, did yeah. she originate the hands by your face scream? The look at my beautiful face while I <laughs> scream move? <laughs>
3: Uh, it's a pretty good move. That- I never
0: realized that, but yeah, that is kind of that's a self framing move, yeah. isn't it?
1: Mm-hmm.
3: Yeah, I had the same reaction seeing it again as you did, Genevieve, of just the thrill of seeing a movie that just is such a skeleton key that unlocks a million other movies and just being there at kind of an origin point for a certain type of cinema that is really dominant now i mean uh rare rare then but dominant now that scale and that size that pacing just a relentless a relentlessly paced film it's it's fairly long i guess for the for the time It'd be it's uh about an hour and 45 minutes but uh there's not not a lot of fat on it.
1: Yeah, but it it still takes the time to feel leisurely. I mean, a lot of films that that don't have the budget for more than a few like big special effects shots kind of dole them out like grudgingly. This mm-hmm. movie spends like so much loving time like watching Kong, watching the dinosaurs, like as though they had all the money in the world to burn. Like at the point where he he climbs up on the the top of his mountain, kind of like before he starts uh, getting fei naked. Uh, there's just like kind. Of a leisureliness to that that's kind of okay, I've just killed like twelve dinosaurs. I really need a break now. <laughs> and the movie just kind of takes a breath there that's a really nice breath. I mean, both both because it's a beautiful shot and because it's just this sense of unlike a lot of modern blockbusters, you don't need to have frantic action okay. every single
3: minute i can i can see where you're, where you're coming from there for sure
1: i mean it doesn't feel baggy i'm not disagreeing with you like usually when you say a movie no no is- that's what i'm
3: saying i mean it's the pacing's not slack
1: uh, yeah in, in, it, anyway exactly it's not well it's pretty perfect it's not slack but it's also not rushed or panicky
0: well and also that that lead up before they get to the island it's so anticipatory because you you know from denim's behavior that something is there and to go to your impossible question scott of what it must have been like to you know see this in 1933 audiences didn't know that kong was there you know like compared to skull island you get kong in the very first scene because audiences are coming to this movie to see king kong but in the original, there's just all this build up to that first shot, or really the first roar of Kong. And it does take its time in comparison to, I think, what we think of as modern blockbusters. But it really works just in terms of, like you said, letting us get to know these characters and kind of establishing a story among the human actors while letting this mystery play out beneath it all
1: that i'm gonna call bs on the the so-called old arabian
0: proverb uh, oh yeah it's like a whole little <laughs> poetic moment about beauty and the beast yeah the beauty killed the beast thing is hammered home quite hard what, what does
3: it mean guys <laughs> what, i don't even understand oh, it means like, that what?
1: women get blamed for everything i mean come yeah. on you hate women oh yeah but you aren't women I mean, you know, women are just bothersome. It's just yeah. the way
0: you're made. You're, they're all right, but women just can't help being a bother.
1: <laughs> it, you know, it's it's funny. Like I I have such a hair trigger for misogyny in movies. The misogyny in this movie makes me giggle because it's so it's so quaint and it's so uh, shucks dames. They they're, they're yeah. nothing but trouble. Like there's just there's something comically oversized and muscular about it um we can get into the like the weird bestiality slash racism thing that's going on which is a very very different animal but all of like the big performative you know dames there's such trouble kind of stuff I find really kind of adorable here. And it's all kind of in service of, uh, you know, letting you know that John Driscoll is, is a manly man who's going to be running around with his shirt ripped and his sweaty pecs uh, hanging out like half the film. But it's also just kind of to, Kind of helping to set the scene of this, like, you know, very traditional Tarzan of the Apes, like, two-fisted adventure kind of world. Mm -hmm. You know, it is a world of men where, you know, women are screaming, flailing victims. And I can't feel bad about it. It's just so cute. (laughs)
0: Misogyny—it's just so cute. It's Tasha just so Robinson. Cute. The next I'm putting that show. on a T-shirt <laughs> well, I think, with I a think picture of King Kong on it. All the
4: men kind of seem diminished by it, and ultimately, uh, well, certainly with Driscoll, uh, it, it's very much a uh, uh, something he does not back up with his actions. You know.
1: Well, I mean, that whole thing about I hate women, but you're not women. Mm-hmm. Okay. I mean, like everybody who's ever been told, you know, you're one of the good ones, <laughs> yeah, <that's true. laughs> knows that he needs a good punch in the jaw. But it's meant to show that he's a strong man before he immediately softens himself into a romantic lead. So I I don't know. It's just it's performative in a way that I find pretty harmless.
3: I guess you would say that Faye Ray has got a little more dimensionality than a a typical damsel in distress type of character, right?
1: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, from the moment that Denim picks her up, she's got personality. Mm -hmm. And she's like, she makes it clear pretty immediately, like... I'm starving to death, but like if you <laughs> yeah. want if you want something underwater, you can get bent. Like she's got moxie.
3: She does have lot, lots of uh, moxie. I think she she comes and she does surprise them. I mean, whether you know she's like the one exception to all to all women or whatever, <laughs> she is she is at, at the very least surprising to them and, and uh, adventurous spirit for sure.
0: Well, she's surprising to the islanders too. She's a, a blonde white lady. Yeah. Hey, she's worth six native ladies, yeah. apparently, on yep. the open market. <laughs> <sighs>
1: That's how it works. <laughs>
3: yeah, there's some parts of this movie that are a little a little hard to watch these days. <laughs> well, I mean, should we try to get into those parts a little bit? Let's get into like the the big relationship, the relationship between Andero and King Kong. What are some of the dynamics involved in that? Uh, racially and sexually.
1: Okay, so racially speaking, uh, mm-hmm. Gene Demby of NPR's Code Switch um, recently did a piece about whether it's possible to make a King Kong without racial implications, mm-hmm. without kind of the shadow of racism that's always hung over all of these films. And they kind of look at the new one and, and look at the history of these movies to, to examine them. And their answer is basically, no, not really. Because these movies come out of a history of you know, stories about Africa, the forbidden continent, that are all kind of predicated on the idea that like Africa is this dark, mysterious place, literally full of dark, mysterious people, and that the dark, mysterious people are very animal like and the animals are very people like. It's just this whole weird admixture of like European complete non-understanding of other cultures. I mean that hangs over it pretty heavily. Um, what also hangs over very heavily is American history in terms of what was going on when this film was made was like was the Great Migration, with more and more black people moving out of rural areas to the city, and then more and more overcrowding and competition for jobs. And you were seeing a lot of stories like this that were specifically about white fear of black faces. So in this movie, you have like a big mysterious black creature coming to the big city and getting killed, and the racial implications were not lost on anybody at the time, nor was the way that King Kong is portrayed facially. I mean, he's very expressive and human, but his face is designed to be like a black person's face. Like every time he like sneers at Fay Ray or leers, like it's a very human thing and it's a very sexual thing. This is this the the most sexual of the King Kong movies? No,
4: seventy six is is (laughs) more overt than this. It's been
1: Um, a long time for that one for me.
4: Yeah, no, it's very much Jessica Lange getting pawed and you know in a wet, barely there dress uh, for for much of the film and kind of developing the the feeling is not necessarily mutual in the seventy six King Kong, but it's definitely more of a uh, she definitely grows very fond of Kong in a way that Feyre doesn't. You can ask me anything about the seventy six. Yeah, Keith. I was like, I
3: asked Keith beforehand. It's like, are you going to have just like this vast store of King Kong? in your head, and you were like, oh, you know, I know more about the seventies. Yeah, it's just
4: because that movie was like I was three when it came out, but I remember all the hype around it, and it's a movie that was like watched on television all the time. Mm-hmm. And, I, and, I, and I think you know, there's some very formative things in, in that film. There's there's a giant monster and a half dressed Jessica Lange. These are things that, that stick with you at a certain age. You know yeah.
1: <laughs> Well, I uh, mean, taking it back to the question we we're just talking about, so the thirty three Kong has uh, a tribe of of black natives who are barely dressed, who are superstitious, who were this ape, it has an ape that is very, very consciously modeled after a bunch of contemporary stereotypes of black men. So, like, I have a lot of opinions about what Kong Skull Island does with that. But what a, what does the '76 version do with race?
4: Um, it's a little less Hollywood natives and more National Geographic natives. But I don't think it really questions any of the uh, stereotypes that you see in this one all that all that heavily.
3: What about a read, I guess, of King Kong as uh, anti-colonialist? Is that? Uh... I mean, there's
4: a famous monologue and and inglorious bastards uh, about King Kong being a metaphor for the African American experience taken out of, out of country, you know, taken in in chains and so on and so forth. Uh, uh, I mean, I think it's open. You can read this film a lot of ways. I think it's part of why it's interesting. I think it's a complicated film and I think it's, it's a film where all that stuff, I think it probably made audiences uncomfortable then. It makes us uncomfortable now, maybe a little in different ways, but I, I think it's worth investigating why. Well,
1: I mean one thing and it's really hard to figure out how to talk about this in a remotely delicate way. I mean the whole idea of, you know, the ape threatening the the very egregiously white woman, the, the you know, the fantasy blonde is built on all of these racial fears about people of color coming and taking our women. Mm -hmm. The kind of thing that you see just as like this knee jerk reaction over and over with white supremacist types. They're taking our women, they're muddying our blood. So like that all came out of a very specific racial place and it kind of keeps coming up again. Like the further they try to get away from it, the less they get away from like any kind of emotional contact between them at all, which is fine. But I mean, here it's, it feels exactly like it did in Birth of a Nation. It's, it's kind of the leering, eye-rolling, I'm a huge, powerful thing that is scary, and I'm literally taking this white woman away from this white man who then has to come along and rescue her.
4: I will say yeah. this much, you know, in terms of it complicating things is it's hard not to feel respect and sympathy for Kong. You know, he's so expressive and he's such a kind of pitiable figure in some ways that it's it's not just pure aggression and pure lust. It's sort of a it's hard not to feel for the guy. I mean, I, I find the Kong and Frankenstein, Frankenstein's monster. I'll, I'll, I'll be pedantic about this, that, you know, they're made more effective because you can kind of identify with them.
1: Well, the, I mean, the black men are coming and taking all of our women away comes from a place of racial fear sure. and a place of perceived inferiority. I think part of the reason you can identify with him is he's a power fantasy. Mm-hmm. I mean, like he has the ability to to literally grab the woman that he thinks is beautiful and rip her clothes off and you know I was going to say there are no ramifications or there are no consequences for that but I guess long term there are
4: The story is also tragic though yeah it's, oh, a, yeah. it's presented uh, as a tragedy oh for sure and, not, and the end is not a triumphant one I think it's a very uh, melancholy ending uh, in this movie so it's right. not you know it's 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 not. A I don't of drama. don't make me just defend the racial <laughs> politics of King Kong when I when I can only go so far with that. But I think there is there is nuance. To
0: well, this. I I think it's a double edged sword because Kong is humanized, and that's what makes him such an effective character. And it was like what allows you to identify with him and like recognize that pain on his face but it is also what allows you or what invites you to put this racial spin on the relationship you know it's he's not just a beast he's not just a raging id there is a humanized element to him and i think that's where a lot of the icky racial dynamics stem from
4: but if you did want to do as as Scott was bringing up before an anti-colonialist uh read on this everything that happens is a result of white people going where yeah. they're mm-hmm. not supposed to go that's exactly you know, what I was Kind of tampering in areas that they were never meant to go, uh, interfering with a culture that, well, involves a certain amount of human sacrifice, but, but was otherwise functional and not causing any harm to the world at large. And now, you know, all the trouble they bring on, they bring on for
3: them. Yeah, I mean, it, it, when you were saying about coming for white women or coming or whatever, that yeah, King Kong no, comes for no one. He King Kong is in his place at, in, in Skull Island, and he's taken away. You know, well, and, yeah, and, then but, he, but, and then when he, then when he is atop the Empire State building I mean, you could say that he's looking for the only person he knows in new york you know i mean <laughs> uh, uh uh you know and and, and i think also if you know town, when, 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 he, when he's, when he's <laughs> up there and all those planes are coming down on him you feel like you're rooting for the planes in that situation? Are you rooting for him to get to, to get mowed down? I, I don't think so. I don't think that, that's true now. I don't think it was true at the time either.
1: No, no, you're certainly rooting for him in that moment because, again, kind of a power fantasy of being on top of the world. Yes, Kong himself does not come and steal Fay Ray, but keep in mind that like she ends up in his hands because a bunch of black men literally steal her off of the boat that is her home. the The men are coming to steal our women thing literally happens. And it's not Kong's fault, but it is part of the same culture. He needs to check his privilege. Yeah. <laughs> check his ape privilege. But I'm I'm certainly not arguing that our sympathies are not with Kong in the story. I'm mostly talking about the cultural background in which this film was. Made, oh yeah, no, some no. of the cultural assumptions and some of the specific stories that led to the story that, that were used to inspire the story and were part of like the background narrative that people at the time would have understood culturally and metaphorically. But yes, yeah, so of course, it's a tragedy when he's dragged off in chains and and killed you know it's a, he's this is every every animal on the loose story that we've ever seen you know the the story the other day about the cow getting loose and running around new york you know the llamas that got loose every time an animal gets loose and runs around and we follow it live on streaming you sympathize with the animal mm-hmm. you know you're not
4: I, I mostly worry about the 12 monkeys virus when i see
1: that story <laughs> Llamas don't carry twelve monkeys okay. viruses, Keith. Okay, good. So
3: I guess if you're talking though about a matter of degrees, if we're gonna talk about this beyond the on the on the racism spectrum, <laughs> um, that that this would be if you were gonna uh, compare it to something like the birth of a nation. I mean birth of a nation you know the the black characters in that film are horrendously depicted. Thoroughly, there is no sympathy whatsoever. There, you get this you know fairly notorious shot of uh blacks in some sort of a congressional situation, some uh, some sort of state congress. Is that right? You know, uh,
4: when you are looking at me, you are looking at someone who knows he should probably watch Black okay. Nation <laughs> one these days. <laughs> no, but it's, it's you,
3: it. you actually should because it's because again sure. it's, it's it's foundational. But the uh, and then there is the uh, this whole business about it, black men you know terrorizing, raping white women So so in that sense, I mean, there is zero sympathy mm-hmm. whatsoever. That is just a virulently 100% racist. So this is maybe just, you know, just a little notch, a notch I, above. It, uh, I, know I think it's little, several little, you know, There's, notches there's above. several notches above, right? So I just want to make that a little bit clear. There's yeah. a little more nuance to it. Than that,
0: there's a big difference between evoking uh, like racial dynamics and racial issues and validating them. Yeah, yeah. And I think King Kong definitely skews more to the evoking side than necessarily commenting one way or the other. Um, and again, just
1: you know, it's part of its time. It reflects mm-hmm. its time and it reflects the both the cultural history and the like the political history of its era. I mean, you know,
3: Marianne C. Cooper will, will, will give you the cigar as a cigar uh, <laughs> explanation, which I guess probably uh, he's probably the only one who buys that one, into that one. But.
1: Well, you know, don't necessarily look for the artist to understand the full yeah. impact of their work, and I'm even more so when it's like 80-plus years later.
3: Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I know. Isn't that a thing, too, when you watch uh, a film from, like, 1933, and you're like, everyone involved in making this film is not alive anymore?
1: You yeah, Thierry lived
4: for a long time, though. She had a cameo in that that 90s remake of Mighty Joe Young, she and Mary Harryhausen, who did the effects for the original Mighty Joe Young, was also Willis O'Brien's kind of heir. Mm -hmm. um, Cameo as a couple at a party in that, which is kind of a nice thing.
3: Well, that's what I want to shift to now. Anyway, if you mentioned Harryhausen, what about the effects of this film? You know, we talk about like the legacy of King Kong. The effects are certainly part of that legacy. What do you think of them now? I'm, of course, utterly charmed by them and, and love them, but they can be a little bit Even at the time, mechanical...
4: I don't know. I think these creatures have such personality. Every one of them, the Kong encounters and, and fights, there's a lot of character to them even as they're fighting Kong. I mean, and, and I find, you know, I, I still find them really impressive. I mean, I'll do my, my line is always like, is the effects that are in the world that, you know, you're in the world of these effects and, and you should try to enter that world and mm-hmm. be into it. And, you know, on Skull Island, things can be a little herky-jerky, <laughs> but, uh, but uh, that's just the
0: way the creatures work there. Mm-hmm. I, I will say the first shot of Kong, is not the best shot of Kong and uh, is maybe the source of some of those uh, giggles that that were in that review you quoted. But Kong himself becomes a lot more expressive as the film goes on i think the first shot of kong i'm talking about is just like where his head comes up and he just have that big white grin mm-hmm. and those big white teeth are a problem i think with the character design of kong both if you want to take it to the the racial aspect mm-hmm. you know that's certainly a a design choice that maybe is a little loaded but also it just it does look a little silly in that first shot but as he moves and as he fights and as you see him in these powerful compositions, he becomes more of a character and less of a little toy that someone like brought up into frame you know, at the, the, the right moment. It
4: raises questions about how he's able to clean his teeth. Yeah.
0: Yeah. <laughs> the I mean, villagers have a great dental plan. Oh, yeah, wow. And that's
1: super close up when he's first introduced and we keep zooming way, way in on him. Uh, his, his teeth are pretty grubby, mm. honestly. Mm. I mean, they do have a tendency to kind of pop out of his dark, dark face, but he is not seeing an orthodontist on the No, he, he
3: flosses with his human sacrifice.
1: <laughs> oh, that would explain yeah. it. Good for him. Uh, you know, for me, the two big legacies of this movie from a special effects point of view are the idea that a Kong movie is not a Kong movie until he's fought some lizard sort of thing. <laughs> Which, especially in the Jackson film, that just seems to be the be-all and end-all. Is like, how many T-Rexes can he fight? I thought that that was one of the most tedious parts of a really overlong film is just let's just keep piling on the Mm -hmm. (laughs) T-Rexes and see how many he can take. And then in Kong Skull Island, it's like uh, the main bad guys are these lizard things. It's like he spends so much time fighting dinosaurs in the original that that's what people remember. So that's one thing It's just the legacy of there's nothing, nothing for Kong to do on his island except fight dinosaur creatures all the time. Mm-hmm. The other one is the weird-ass idea that dinosaurs scream <laughs> <laughs> all the damn time. This is, this is something that has obsessed me in film since at least D-Wars, the terrible, hilarious Korean film with Robert Forster involving dinosaurs and dragons invading the contemporary world. The idea that snakes and lizards and lizard creatures of all kinds just scream all the time, especially when they're hunting. <laughs> when I saw Kong Skull Island, I actually went to our science team at The Verge and was like – Are there lizards that scream that I don't know about? Is there any basis for this whatsoever in science? And they're working on a video about it, about kind of the history of lizards screaming on film. And I came up with like 20 video clips of different movies, like ranging from Star Wars Revenge of the Sith, where Obi-Wan's riding around on this lizard that screams all the time, to every single Kong movie. But I kind of trace it back to this Kong, just every single one of the dinosaurs moves, roars, moves, roars, moves, roars. And it's kind of a like a declaration of, like, I'm a scary thing that you need to be scared of. But I just have to wonder if it partially comes out of this is a complicated uh, stop motion effect. It can't be moving all the time. If it just, like, twists its head back and forth and roars, it looks like you're getting a lot of action. But it's not actually chasing down and eating somebody, which is a much more complicated shot.
3: To the first point that you made, I think it kind of speaks to King Kong as a standard bearer to to, because you you know I think you could potentially make a King Kong in which he is the only creature that you encounter on this island but this film hits you with a a whole lot of stuff and so and so when you get to Peter Jackson it's like I have to do more than that and you get to Kong Skull Island it's like we have to do more than that there's this bar set for what a spectacle is and what you know what a blockbuster is that this film sets so early that film's you know, four or five, six decades later, uh, still we're kind of catching up to it.
0: Here's my question. If you discovered an Island that also had a bunch of dinosaurs on it, why would you not bring some of those dinosaurs back instead of just killing them? Well, (laughs) like, they're elusive. Like, like, people knew about dinosaurs had, in the 30s, had, right? They only had four of
1: those bombs.
0: I mean, was, I mean, they, they just, like, killed that stegosaurus. There was no, like, wonder, like, whoa, that's a stegosaurus. <laughs> I,
1: I did think that that was weird. I I was wondering if there was ever another cut, you know, because subsequent Kong movies have made such a point of, like, how can we explain the, the world that time forgot in Skull Island? It's like, let's give you a quick rundown of the hollow earth theory. Like, there's always some reason. In this case, it's like, <laughs>
0: stegosaurus, let's kill its ass. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> (laughs) It's a monster.
1: I I, I was... I thought...
4: We're going to just let's call it island, but I think this is almost like the last point in time where you could set this movie and have people buy it. It's before the satellites. It's before, like soldiers went and saw parts of the world they'd never seen before in World War II. Uh, I mean, specifically the like South Pacific and, and all this. And, and this, is all for, this, is, this is when, to Western audiences, there's huge parts of the globe that were just unfilmed and unknown and uncharted. And you can still believe in, like, lost islands. You know, I, I'm not sure that you would made this movie even 10 years later. I'm sure there were Lost World movies. I know there were Lost World movies made after that. But, but I think this is, this is kind of time for maximum impact on the, on the culture when this
0: movie came out.
1: I mean, they're still making Land of the Lost, Journey to the Center of the Earth, like that yeah, kind of thing. Yeah.
0: But but as you say, they always have to shoehorn in this explanation for. Well, know, this
4: is like, of course, there's a land where this, this stuff yeah. happens. There's all kinds of crazy stuff we haven't seen yet. Yeah. There's all kinds of stuff on the parts of the map that haven't, haven't been filled in.
0: I mean, I'm just saying, pro- Denim probably would have made some pretty good money if he had a T Rex to, yeah. to show in New York, too. So, <laughs> no, no, we all know no, how that no, turned no, out no. in which, The which, Lost World. <laughs>
1: But which building would the T-Rex climb with its tiny little arms? You would have to set the big climax like at ground level because it couldn't go up. Uh, there's this shot when when Driscoll runs off after Kong has knocked down the tree bridge and killed all of those poor men where Driscoll and Denim have a conversation on either side of the cliff. And Driscoll's like, I'm going to go rescue her. And he runs off and Denim runs off and then he stops and looks back at the you know his the first mates retreating back over the uh, the other side of the ravine and just kind of smiles and then turns back and runs and I, I always wonder if what he's thinking is man i wish i had my camera right now
3: so we touched on this a little bit earlier but maybe we should get into it a little bit more uh, what do you make of the violence in king kong uh, a lot of the more shocking bits like kong mistaking a sleeping woman for Anne and then just dropping her off the building uh, <laughs> were excised by censors and found their way back uh, into the cut that we we see today but the unaltered cut is still startling to behold, especially by 1933 standards. I mean, that was the thing, just really just about this whole whole film. I just I don't know what the precedent is. Even the building blocks to this are insufficient. This just seems larger than anything that was made before.
4: Well, I mean, Willis O'Brien worked on a film called The Lost World, which was an adaptation of the Arthur Conan Doyle uh, mm-hmm. novel, novella story, I think, I think novel, which kind of created the whole idea of this lost continent, lost world where dinosaurs still live and giants walk the earth. That's, it's a neat movie if you ever get a chance to see a silent film, and the effects on it are really cool, but it is very much like, there's much less of a plot to it. It's kind of come gawk at the monsters, if, if I recall correctly.
3: I just, and I just recently watched uh, The Most Dangerous Game, right. uh, which the same sets were used mm-hmm. for both films, and that, has its, you know, that also has Fay Ray and it has uh, some similar themes and backdrops. But in any case, uh, t- To the Violence uh Anyone's fighting the violence still kind of shocking. It's really disturbing. I mean, the native getting just smashed
4: beneath yeah. Kong's foot.
0: Yeah, that's the one does, I was going to bring up. The it really, goes on forever. Yeah, there's two of them too. Yeah, of, you know, and just getting mushed into the mud. And like, I really want to know how that was achieved because it really seems like an actor was getting crushed into the, some mud.
3: <laughs> soft mud.
0: Yeah, it's kind of been pleasant.
3: Yeah. For
0: me, it's always the it's always the log
1: shot where Kong is just like laboriously shaking man after man after man off this log, and like mm-hmm. you really feel their their efforts to get away, like they're really fighting to survive.
0: And one by one, it just proves futile. Well, and you see them hit the ground, like yeah. I mean, they're they're, they're they're like sandbags, but you still see them like hit the ground. And, yeah, over and over and over. Like yeah. the
1: the camera makes a point of catching each one of them, and that I mean, that's one of the few effects that really does not work for me because they're so ragdoll-y and they're so. Sand-y handbaggy but the, just the fact that i mean we watch those men die one by one slowly each with like the realization that oh you know so and so just died and now so and so has just died and now i'm about to die i mean it's just it's heavy and it goes on for a really long time and he keeps relenting and it keeps looking like he's going to turn away and he's like oh wait no there's still more human beings to murder
4: and that's until the new york shots you get a, you get a feeling of how inconsequential human life would be to a giant animal Hmm. to an animal that's capable of just flicking people off like we we do with uh with flies you know
3: puts everything in perspective doesn't it yeah Uh, we're just
4: lucky there aren't giant apes rampaging through the streets of chicago yet.
0: yet yeah
3: yet. uh okay well we'll be right back with some listener feedback on our last episode Get Out has already surpassed $100 million on a $5 million budget and appears destined to be one of the most successful horror films of all time. Given its popularity and the provocative nature of its themes, our listeners hit us with quite the deluge of opinions about our last episode, which paired it with Wes Craven's The People Under the Stairs. In fact, people were so amped by Get Out that all of our letters were about it. (laughs) And most of those letters were quite long, so these are edited a bit uh, for concision. All these letters are Get Out-related and very spoiler-filled, so if you have not seen Get Out, and why haven't you, go check it out and then listen to this part of the podcast. Our first letter is from Keith. So, Keith, since your name is also Keith, uh, do you want to get us started?
4: <laughs> yeah. One of the biggest horror movies of all time. That's, that's kind of cool. Yeah? Yeah. That's, uh, all right. So, the other Keith from Virginia Beach writes... I just wanted to jump in with a quick, and this is in quotes, hot take on why Rod's police report, the most criticized scene in Get Out, represents one of the most interesting and subversive commentaries on the black experience in America. I remember reading a book, I want to say John Ronson's book on conspiracies, Them, that argued it is easier to understand how conspiracies take hold if you look at their societal context. With the African-American community, it does not take a lot of imagination to see why there might be a seeded distrust for the government and authority figures. Recently, Kyrie Irving, point guard for the Cleveland Cavaliers, revealed that he believes the earth to be flat. He was ridiculed and mocked, but he said, I've seen a lot of things that my educational system said was real and turned out to be completely fake. Rod's storyline works as a commentary on this idea. Based on his experience as a black man in America, Rod's series might not sound so crazy in his own mind. I saw Rod's storyline as a central piece to the film's commentary on the black experience in America and as a call to not be so quick to mock certain theories or thoughts expressed by African-Americans. The darker sides of this idea came up when ta passage on 9-11 in Between the World and Me. Instead of asking where his feelings were springing from, many people applied their own interpretation and ran with it. I think Rod's character is a testament to the idea that we should actually listen to what people are saying instead of focusing on our own interpretations.
1: I mean, whenever somebody in a conspiracy movie tries to describe what's going on, it sounds insane. And the authorities laugh at them. I think it's interesting here that he's presenting his theory entirely to a group of black cops. The dynamic there would be so certainly consistent with the rest of the film but also so different if it was a bunch of white people like laughing at his crazy ideas but mm-hmm. as it is he he talks to a black woman who then calls in like two black men to basically listen to him and <laughs> laugh at him yeah. and it becomes very much this <laughs> it's, it's black on black emotional violence <laughs> I don't know why I'm laughing that's actually terrible but it's also a comedy uh, routine I mean much like like most scenes involving Rod in that movie it, it's a comedy routine and in part it's a comedy routine because you can hear how ridiculous what he sounds says it's a really complicated thing in terms of sympathies because I mean you certainly understand why they think he sounds ridiculous he he does sound ridiculous and yet at the at the same time you know you want him to get help so <laughs> there's there's a lot going on in that scene and yet at the same time it's hilarious and the fact that there are that many different layers to it is part of what I love about this
0: movie.
3: Uh, So, Genevieve, I know you wanted to read this next one, which deals with an issue that wasn't raised in the episode that you might have brought to the table.
0: Uh, Yeah. Ben Sunday, who has written several times before. Hi, Ben. Writes, while most of the discussion of Get Out has treated it as a broad critique of white liberal racism, as it could be experienced by any black male in America, I think it's also worthwhile to read it as a comment on the experience of black artists in particular. Since the young man who's abducted at the beginning is revealed to be a musician, and since Chris himself has been purchased for his own artistic eye, it's apparent that these men are being targeted for their talents as much as their race. That detail allows us to seek it out not only as a reflection of how white liberal racism relates to black people, but also how it relates to black art. To me, the one element that sets GetOut's liberal racism apart from other kinds of racism is its lack of a supremacist ideology. Despite the callousness that they show to Chris and the other victims, Dean Armitage and his friends seem to genuinely admire the accomplishments of talented black people. That easy coexistence of callousness and admiration gets to what I see as GetOut's essential truth, that it's possible for white people to care about black art without caring about black people. As such, while Get Out is clearly commenting on a range of issues from interracial relationships to cultural appropriation, I see it primarily as a horror film about an artist with an audience who recognizes his talent, but not his humanity. This is a good letter. Oh, yep. yeah. yeah. yeah, very, Very good. Yeah.
4: I think that's why that Stephen Root character is so crucial.
0: For sure. And and like I edited the Get Out podcast although I was not able to uh, participate on the whole time. I was just waiting for you guys to get to the appropriation angle and you didn't get there. It was a, it was a great conversation though. I learned so much. But <laughs> I'm I, disappointed I, in you, but it was all Yeah, yeah, right. yeah, yeah. But but it's okay cuz <laughs> we love you. you cuz anyway. Ben is picking up your slack. No, but that was honestly one of the things I found most interesting about the film and it Ben does a good job talking about the appropriation of black artistry, but Every black character we see who has been purchased and implanted with a white person's brain. The grandpa who uh, is inhabiting the body of a black man who is prized for his athletic ability. We see the grandma inhabiting the body of a, of a beautiful woman and constantly looking at herself in the mirror and admiring her own beauty. And we have these two characters uh, that Ben mentions who are valued for their artistry. And if you think about it, like athletic ability, beauty beauty in art, like these are the things that from black culture that is kind of constantly appropriated by white culture. And I think that's not an accident at all.
1: No, not at all. No. Oh. It had escaped me on first viewing that the grandfather who has stolen the a younger body and is running in it mm-hmm. at night is also the grandfather who lost to Jesse right. Owens. Yep. And there's just that feeling of, I, you know, I lost to a black man. I must become a
0: black man. Uh, which, an, an experience that seems to have kicked off this entire uh, thing of his
1: and which is never underlined and again this is one of the things I love so much about this script is nobody ever gives a speech about it mm-hmm. it doesn't have to be explained
4: it's so great to more I think about it too because like Bradley will forget a speech about how he's showing up Hitler and his white supremacist ideology but it's just the seeds are there for something else to happen you know what what happens later in America is, is his own form of racism yeah this it's a rich movie
3: yeah it really is that was the takeaway from just us talking about it on the show. Show, which kind of heightened my appreciation. And then you get a letter like this it's like, whoa, how many layers are in this? <laughs> script there seems a lot i mean it's, it's no mistake that chris is a photographer either and, and i mean that's a, a nice representation just as just like uh, carl denham in our previous segment of of the, f- the filmmaking of, yeah. of somebody with an with an eye um as and being I, representative of the person making the movie
0: yeah and i actually didn't uh, catch that uh lakeith stanfield's character was a musician um which makes it work even better i was because that was like the one thing i was struggling to connect is how he fits into this and like what i came up with is that his coolness is what's being appropriated because when you see him appear later in the film, he is very decked out in what I, I would think of an old white man's uh, idea of a super cool outfit would be. <laughs> but apparently, he's a musician, and that works just as well there.
1: There's just also the profound, de- depressing unsettlingness of the fact that the, that party scene is so uncomfortable. Chris is looking so hard for anybody he can relate to or talk to. And he meets Steven Root's character, who appreciates something about him, who knows something about him and can actually talk to him about his art and how much Steven Root appreciates his art and it's like this nice little moment in the middle of a sea of discomfort of hey here's somebody I can relate to and what's going on in the back of uh, Steven Root's head is I like your art therefore I want it your body is mine your eyeballs are mine your future is mine yoink <laughs>
3: <laughs> yoink <laughs> Why wasn't that effect used, <laughs> uh, that sound effect?
1: That was a good one. Uh, that was apparently a very, very late uh, like post-production removal. Yeah. They just—they dubbed right over the yoink.
3: It's like a scar in fine leather, that uh, flaw. So uh, <laughs> one final note we got from listener JP had the subject line, get out, the photo negative of being John Malkovich? <laughs> uh, <laughs> you got to think about this hard, guys. Uh, JB suggests that the body swappers in both are climbing in different directions on the social ladder. He also agrees with Tasha that, quote, psychic burial slash paralysis is a truly horrifying fate, unquote, and notes that Catherine Keener is partially responsible in both films. So did we miss a, a good pairing here? Oh, yeah. Those are an
1: interesting trio of aligned uh, ideas. Yeah. Catherine Keener, don't don't let her send yeah, you. a link. Man. Uh,
3: that's the link that is most uh, pertinent to me. Catherine Keener.
1: also just to, I think the appropriation ideas and uh, being John Malkovich, that same sort of sense of of entitlement. Of I like your life, so I'm just going to take and, it. And,
3: and talent, and you know, being able to experience the world through someone else. Yeah. Mm-hmm. As always, we appreciate when our listeners share their thoughts and their recommendations. To reach us, you can leave a short voicemail at 234 9730 or email us at comments at nextpictureshow.net we may feature a response on a future episode or post it on facebook for discussion and that's it for this episode of the next picture show in the second half we'll get kong skull island which tries to make kong relevant for 2017 by taking us back to 1973 Look for that later this week, or better yet, subscribe to The Next Picture Show on iTunes or your podcatcher of choice. Follow us at Facebook.com slash NextPictureShow, and follow us on Twitter at at NextPicturePod, so you'll always know when a new episode drops. Until then, we'll be journeying to parts unknown, which is to say we might catch up with a few Anthony Bourdain episodes on CNN.